Let us pray. Holy and gracious God, we give thanks for your word. We pray by the power of your Holy Spirit at work among us and through this word, we might hear your living and active word to us this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our first reading comes from Isaiah chapter 62, verses 1 through 5. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent, and for Jerusalem's sake, I will not rest until her vindication shines out like the dawn and her salvation like a burning torch. The nations shall see your vindication and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You will be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called, my delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your builder marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second reading comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. The Gospel of John, some of you may know, it has a distinct way of telling the story of Jesus' life. We're not told about the Bethlehem birth and, and, and Jesus coming onto the public scene with the Sermon on the Mount. Instead, we're told the story of Jesus by way of seven signs that point to who Jesus is. And today's reading is the first of those seven signs, the the tone-setting sign in, in some ways, like a person giving their first speech after announcing their candidacy. Some of the most important themes and central aspects are really coming right to the fore. Hear now the word of the Lord. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now standing there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to them, fill the jars with water. They filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the chief steward. So they took it. When the steward tasted the water that had become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, The steward called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk. But you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs, in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Some of you know the story from probably my most memorable wedding, memorable in the sense of really not good. And I see at least two recent weddings I've done in this room, and they're both wondering, oh my gosh, how bad was it? It's not you guys. (laughs) 
Uh, and if you've heard it, bear with me, but I think it brings some illumination to the scripture. Uh, this wedding, it took place on a big, large wooden deck out in the middle of Lake Lanier. And you had to, by, the way you got to that long, that deck was by way of a long wooden bridge of about 40 yards from the shore. And we're doing a rehearsal Saturday morning for a Saturday afternoon wedding. And the bride hands me her vows during that rehearsal without any comments or commentary about why she's handing them to me. But she's pretty organized. She's been handing out directions and details about the wedding and the reception to anyone she sees, whether or not it really pertains to them. I figured she just wants me to have an extra copy. I arrived back later that afternoon for the wedding. I parked the car. We're located in that lot on the shore, and I walk across the long bridge to the wooden area porch deck that is the place for the wedding. It's not too long before the bride and groom are before me and the wedding's underway and I've just finished the homily and the groom, he pulls out his vows from his jacket pocket and he reads them and they're moving and they are thoughtful. And he finishes and the bride, she looks at me and I look at the bride and then this awful sense of dread begins to build within me. She has expected me to keep those vows from the morning. And have them on me at this point. And those vows are casually sitting on the front seat of my car. Across the bridge and in the parking lot. What happens. When you're in the middle of a wedding. And the main thing isn't there. Jesus. His disciples. They're in a wedding in Cana. In that context, weddings usually last seven days, and on the third day of this wedding, the wine runs out, and wine was a main thing. Families would have scrimped and saved for months, if not years, to make sure they had wine at the wedding. Wine was a rich symbol of abundance and God's joy and God's blessing. Wine spoke of eternal hope. I mean, the prophet Amos speaks of a day when when Israel will be gathered from exile again by God and and, and gives a picture of that future hope and, and puts it this way. In that day, new wine will drip from the mountains, flow from all of the hills. The people, they will plant vineyards and drink their wine. You wanted wine at a wedding because you were naming God's eternal blessing and joy upon this couple, upon the family, upon all who have gathered And you wanted the wine to last seven days because seven, right, that's the number of completion. And so you're naming joy and blessing and abundance to fill this couple for the entirety of the journey. I think especially of Mary Oliver, the longtime American poet who died this past week. And and she once wrote about when her time would come by employing wedding language. And while not using the word joy specifically in this poem, speaking very much to it. When it's over... I want to say all my life I was a bride married to amazement. I was the bridegroom taking the world into my arms. When it's over, I don't want to wonder if I have made of my life something particular and real. I don't want to find myself sighing and frightened or full of argument. I don't want to end up simply having visited this world. I I want to live a life that somehow, however, wherever I journey... Amazement, And the way she describes it, almost like saying, joy on all seven days. I want to be sure I'm at the source of joy and have that through me. But, what happens when you're three days out of seven into something beautiful and significant 
and the wine runs out. What happens when you're in the middle of the journey of of your marriage, your vow-affirmed, beautiful, significant journey, and the wine runs out? What happens when you're in the middle of your vocation, your calling, your passion for which you are gifted, and quite frankly, the wine is growing thin? Our passage in, in Isaiah, you heard, speaks of our relationship with God as a marriage. But what happens in our following of Jesus, and, and we're living into these vows of discipleship and, and mission and worship, but what happens when the wine starts to grow thin? What happens when, yes, we may well have all the trappings of a wedding or a good life or a church, but what happens in those moments and seasons when the joy has thinned? It's become all duty, no delight, and the soul is thirsty. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now, John is underscoring Mary's relationship to Jesus by only calling her the mother of Jesus in this passage. John is is helping remind us how certain people in our social spheres, they can ask something of us and we cannot help but respond simply by virtue of our relationship. Mother asked. Father asked. Certainly honor your father and mother is playing heavily in Jesus' culture, and we get that the Jesus, he must respond by virtue of his relationship to his mother. But what unfolds, of course, is a little bit more complex than immediate obedience. Woman, what concern is it to you and to me? My hour has not come. My, my hour, my, my time of, of suffering and dying and rising and being revealed fully for who I am, that That time is not now. I don't want to do something that's too early. Scholars, they'll speak of the word choice and grammar here, and it's evident that the tone Jesus takes with Mary is not meant to be rude or abrupt, just very matter-of-fact. Jesus is not necessarily going to honor her request. What Jesus is getting at that he'll make clear later in the Gospel of John is the fact that he only answers to his father in heaven. No brother or sister, no earthly mother or earthly father, no one, however close they may be, can dictate what he will or will not do and when he will or will not do something. He is bound only and fully by his father in heaven. He names that freedom pretty clearly. At the same time, eventually, right in the story, Jesus does act in a way that very much seems prompted by his mother and the concern. So he names his very real and true freedom even as he very much responds in love. This to me seems to capture something of the mystery and paradox of prayer, right? God is absolutely not bound to respond just like we think we need, we surely need to have happen in this timing just this way. God sees a timing that we cannot see, an hour we cannot appreciate And yet, God is absolutely moved in compassion and eager to hear and eager to respond in love. God is both at once free and God is utterly bound for us and to us. The paradox of prayer. When Mary hears Jesus' ambiguous response, 
She turns to the servants at the wedding and she says, look, do whatever he tells you. Anybody else recall where else in scripture you can find that exact phrase? The words, the phrasing, the tense, they are exactly the same as in Genesis 41. You may know the story, there's this severe famine in the land and the people are calling out to the Pharaoh in Egypt and, uh, for help and, and relief and mercy and the Pharaoh, he's got this, this young Jewish shepherd in his courts who seems to have the blessing of God upon him. His name is Joseph, you may recall. And when the famine hits and the land is dry and arid and parched, Pharaoh says to the people, pointing to Joseph, do whatever he says. And Joseph, he's wisely been saving up grains in these huge storehouses for just this moment. And he saves the people by opening this abundance of grain from these storehouses. Mary, she knows enough even of her, about her son, even at this juncture, to say when the wine runs out, he's the keeper of the storehouses. He's the keeper of the vats. Do whatever he tells you. How often when the wine dries up in an endeavor, in our following of Jesus, in a relationship in the church, how often when, when, when things dry up, we are maybe put in a place where our hearts can finally hear afresh that single phrase from Mary, back to the basics, here's your next step, just do whatever he tells you. Whatever his word is for you this day, however simple or straightforward or odd or whatever his word is for this day, do that. Now standing there were six stone, jar, wa- stone water jars for Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20, 30 gallons. Jesus said to them, fill the jars with water. The jars were sacred as their waters were used in a process and people were purified from their failings, their sins, their wrongs. That the jars are stone and not baked clay underscores how non-porous these jars are. They're airtight and perfect for a purification process. And they're huge, right? Together they hold, what, 80 to 120 gallons. It's striking that when Mary says, do whatever he says... Jesus does not all of a sudden, to keep the ball rolling, snap his fingers and and there, wine appears. For Jesus, part of the new wine process is taking time to point out the deficiency. And so in our passage, Jesus turns toward those sacred jars that are made to cleanse people and make them right and pure and good. And his command is to fill those jars, pointing out that in fact those jars are empty. Indeed, in Jesus' time, the jars had become an empty ritual. Beautiful, large, impenetrable stone jars that make people good and holy and pure, but there's no water, There's, there's no substance. All form, no substance. And Jesus comes along and fills this, the beautiful void with new water that when drawn out is the very best, most complex, most exquisite wine. An absolute 
abundance of it, more than the whole wedding could have drunk in the entire seven days. The basic confession of the church of Jesus Christ is that Jesus was not merely a great teacher or admirable human, but that Jesus is the source of all life, of all hope, of all joy. Jesus is in fact God, and he abounds foremost within himself with joy for us and offers joy to us. And through us. And when the church sings that old African American spiritual, Give me Jesus, most essentially it is a cry to know oneself rooted in and filled with and overflowing with a joy surpassing all others. Wine is the first sign because joy is central to our God. So I mouth back to the bride quietly. I need to get the vows. And she goes, yeah. (laughs) But I'm in such a free fall mentality, I don't don't actually know what to say to to the guests or anyone. Fortunately, somebody speaks up from this fairly sports-minded gathering and, and, and they say, so are we taking a timeout? I said, yes. This is a timeout. Two minutes. I'll be right back. And then in my suit, I begin to run this 40-yard bridge by myself with everyone watching. I don't even remember opening the car doors and getting the valves, but I did. And I ran back in my suit across the 40-yard bridge with everybody watching. I felt like slow-motion reality the entire time. It was humbling. It was awkward. If there was one thing I felt I, I could do pretty well, it was a wedding. I mean, I could work hard to find maybe the right words and make sure there was a presentable suit and order to the service and a practiced cadence and all the rest. And it was like Jesus took that wedding to say to my soul, stone jars. It all looks so rock solid. But without me, it's empty. It's all form. It's no substance. It's certainly not joy. Bobby, you showed up to the wedding with all the right words and attire, but you forgot the vows. Your vow to me to abide in me as I abide in you, to be filled from the core of your being with joy. I would have loved for Jesus to have snapped his finger and made this woman's vows appear in my hands at that moment without any of that embarrassment or awkwardness of running all the way across the bridge and back across the bridge. But how often the process of new wine first involves Jesus turning to those perfect stone jars and making clear that they're the source of the emptiness. Because then once humbled, we can start to really be filled again. What happens when right in the middle of the wedding, the main thing isn't there? Maybe it is a gift. Maybe it opens us again into that paradoxical space of prayer. Maybe it opens us to hear Mary calling afresh to us today, do whatever he says. 
Maybe it opens us to finally be honest about some of the perfect stone jars that make us or our church appear good and right and pure. Maybe it's a gift where we can confess honestly and say, you know, we forgot the vows. And thanks be to God, the Cana wedding, it takes place on the third day. For even as that means the wedding's not even halfway through, it also points to the fact that when Jesus shows up, it is resurrection water that will be poured into those empty, broken, humbled vessels. It is water stronger than death being poured into those empty, broken vessels. And when drawn and tasted, stunning wine. And could the good news of Jesus Christ be more palpably made known by the church in this world than if our, every heartbeat of our prayer and action, our, our meals and, and our missions, our actions, our advocacy, if every part of it was fueled by joy? Because right, the end of our passage notes that Jesus' followers believe it is joy that is the sign that leads unto belief. By the power of the Holy Spirit at work in our midst this day, may you taste and see afresh the goodness and the joy of our God. Amen.